Good morning, Community Bible Church and visitors far and wide. This morning, I'm your guest preacher. My name is Steve Balico, and I'm speaking to you from Montana, actually from the eastern front of the Rocky Mountains, where my family and I live. We have a small farmette here, um, and sometimes it feels like a zoo. We've got lambs and sheep and kittens and cats, new baby chicks, uh, a dog, and even a salamander. So it does feel like a little bit of a zoo here, but uh, it's a beautiful time of the year as spring is finally winning over seven months of winter. And uh, I'm just excited to be with you this morning. I'm incredibly thankful to your pastor, Dick Wiedenheft, for giving me the opportunity to, to speak with you this morning. He and I have been friends for a long time, since our college days. He has been a mentor and a friend to me. And uh, it's just a a great honor to be with you this morning to share with you. Uh, if you ever get a chance, uh, you can ask your pastor about how he and I ended up in a YouTube music video, but that's a story for another time. By profession, I'm a counselor, a therapist, and I have worked in Oregon and now here in Montana for over a decade. Um, I work with men, women, family, children, uh, also, I work with uh, the incarcerated population. So I have worked with uh, women, men, teenagers who find themselves incarcerated. And uh, I've done that for also for over a decade. So that's a little bit about myself. Um, at this particular time in history, this time of the pandemic, even in Montana, every day kind of feels like blurs day. We are all struggling to recall what day of the week it is and what we need to do to keep the important and life-giving things primary in our days. And so together, this morning, I want to declare that today is the Lord, the day the Lord has made. It is the Sabbath. It is Sunday, and today we gather, even just virtually, to worship God and to be changed by encountering his word. Let me reread our main text. Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither, and all he does prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. In the fourth century, church father Jerome described the first psalm as a great door of a whole vast building. And it really seems that Psalm chapter 1 has been placed here to give us directions about how to use the book of Psalms. It tells us how to walk through this book. It also tells us what to avoid. The instructions go beyond just our use of the Psalms, but it has applications to the whole Bible and to our daily lives. Immediately in verse 1, we are clearly told that what we, to do in, what we need to do according to living to God's plan, things that we are supposed to not do, and then again, right in verse 2, two things to do instead. Wasting no time, this psalm provides us with two distinct ways to live. And interestingly enough, only two ways. 
blessing is afforded to one life path and not the other. I visualize this psalm as kind of posted on a wooden placard at the, di the divergence of two roads or two paths. At first, they appear, appear indistinguishable from each other. One is marked the God word, and the other is marked otherwise. The first is the road of salvation and eternal life. The second path is one of one's own making, which ultimately and repeatedly comes to nothing, or as the psalm itself says, to perishing. On seeing the nature of the per perishing path, we clearly are discouraged from trafficking in wickedness, sinning, and mockery. We can't escape the psalm's directness here, and it demands that we reflect on how we spend our thoughts, our words, our time, affections, and pursuits. So, okay, the first, first out of the gate, the bad news. If our time and affections, attentions, are spent trafficking in these things, we're going to be left with nothing. Our harvest in daily life and eternal life is likened to chaff that flies up in the air and vanishes. Here in Montana, in wheat country, I understand this chaff idea. Chaff is a thin, fibrous shell that falls off the grain of wheat. It's worthless, and it has no structural integrity once it comes off that grain of wheat. And in fact, if it gets between your, your shirt and your skin, it's nothing but an irritating nuisance. So secondly, here, and there's worse news. Verse 5 lets us know that the wicked who stood around joking and plotting and raising havoc will not have a standing with God. They will have no leg to stand on in the presence of God and will have no name or place among the people of God. In fact, in verse 6, it, it, we, feel this we see this confirmed, that their path is utterly forgotten and will perish. This is the ultimate dead-end path. Thankfully, the psalm gives us an alternative path the Godward path of being blessed. This path involves the choice of taking God at his word and taking his word seriously enough to enjoy the Bible, to read and deeply consider, to meditate on it all day long. This is a sharp contrast to the other path. The person who's on the path of righteousness submits themselves by the power of God to what God says and to what God thinks. It is the opposite of what was happening in the book of Judges, where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. On this path, we seek out, we study, and pursue what is right in the eyes of God, the maker of heaven and earth. And we do get this clear and consistent guidance from God on how we live. And there's even, there's good news on this path. The person who pursues this path is one of substance. There are promised provisions, and, the, and forms of prosperity. You're going to thrive as a human being. You may not be wealthy, and in many cases, many are not wealthy, but they will be full, whole, and vibrant people. No one is attracted to a withered up, dead stick of a tree falling over next to a dry creek bed. And on the path of righteousness, the exact opposite is what is promised. We're protected from becoming that withered up tree by being on God's path of righteousness. And there's even better news. God will create a congregation, a community of people on this path of righteousness that can stand in judgment because Jesus has paid for our judgment. 
And we are freed from the judgments of God when we entrust our lives to Christ Jesus. We will have two legs to stand on in his presence because he has empowered us to stand in the power of his son. And he knows our path. He knows where we walk in fellowship, a relational kind of knowing. He walks with us and is close to us. And what is remarkable in this reality is that we are known by the king of the universe each step of our lives. Now, that's a basic framework of Psalm chapter 1. And for this morning, I'm going to take a deep dive into a single word in this psalm. And I want to explore how understanding this concept will help us to avoid the path of wickedness and cherish the path of righteousness. As strange as it may initially sound, I want to focus on the word scoffing. And I'm going to refer to it as mockery for the rest of our time this morning. We seem, in this current era, to be soaking in an age of mockery. Long before the fear and the stress and the hardships of this pandemic, mockery has run amok. And in the thicket of the age of COVID-19, many things are in upheaval and are changing rapidly. But biblical realities and truth remains constant. And the battle between what doesn't change rages on. These two paths, the two ways towards God and away from God, delighting in him or mocking him. Let me give you two curious examples of this mocking attitude right here in the Psalms. In fact, you won't have to go very far in your Bibles to see this. Go ahead and turn to Psalm chapter 2, verses 2 through 3. This is what it says there. The kings of the earth set themselves up, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And here, this is what we hear in this verse. We hear earthly power mocking and trying to rival God's power. And then in the very next psalm, Psalm chapter 3, verses 1 to 2, we see this. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising up against me, and many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Here in the Psalms, we hear this. We hear choruses of people denying God's power, denying that he is able to save, and instead offering mockery and despair. There are actually more than 30 examples of these types of mocking statements in the Psalms. It's almost as if the organizer of the Psalms wanted us to see real-life examples of that mockery right away. We've got it talked about in the first Psalm, and then right out of the gate, we see examples of this mockery. And why is this? I don't think that they are here for us to get better at mocking, and they certainly aren't here for to take note of and to do likewise. Let's look at these separately and hear what is being mocked and, and maybe perhaps what we're meant to see. So let's go back to Psalm chapter 2. In Psalm chapter 2, we have kings and authorities telling God and the anointed one of God that they refuse to follow his laws and his ways, describing the good ways of God as both bonds and cords, kind of like handcuffs or shackles. This is the fist shaking itself at God, saying, I want to do it my own way. Another way of saying this is, you will not tell me how to live my life. Or, if you want the toddler version, you're not the boss of me. 
Do these, does this sentiment, does this kind of attitude sound familiar? Okay, hold on to that. Let's go to, let's go to Psalm 3. In Psalm chapter 3, the mockery is different, but no less insidious. Here is active opposition by many that rise against me. And they say, there is no salvation for him in God. Picture it like this. There's a big group of people on the perishing path of wickedness, yelling over to those on the Godward path of righteousness, trying to convince us that God is impotent, powerless, and a farce. In other words, saying to us, you are idiots for wasting your time and your life with all that God stuff. Step over here. Come on over here. Join us in the pleasurable salvations we have chosen and worked for ourselves. And don't we fall for this sometimes? We question ourselves. We question God. Is this right? Is this worth it? Is God all that he says that he is? And that's just what the enemy of our souls wants us to get distracted by in our doubts. Yes, there is nothing new under the sun. I see that this breaks down into three categories of mockery that are important for us to acknowledge in us and around us. So first, let's look at the wider world and culture. We could spend all day and all night illustrating how much mockery is being thrown around in media, in politics, in entertainment. And this isn't just mockery about Christians or Christianity. It seems that nothing is off limits to be lampooned. I want to highlight one public mockery that occurred this month. By bringing attention to this quote, I want to be clear, I am not making a political statement in support or opposition of a person. I want to make a spiritual point about a prevalent attitude that has snaked its way down through human history. And this provides a very contemporary example of mocking God's role in his good world. So on April 13th, the governor of New York said this about COVID-19 infections. The number is down because we brought the number down. God did not do that. Faith did not do that. Destiny destiny did not do that. A lot of pain and suffering did that. That's how it works. It's math. I have no idea his intention in making this statement. However, the words themselves sound a lot like the kings of the earth railing against God, just like what we heard in Psalm chapter 2, verse 3 wanting to throw off the cords of being bound to God's ways. He is far alone. He is not alone in his mocking tone. The nightly news, Facebook, Twitter reveal similar sentiments of opposition to God that are toxic, backbiting, that are cruel mockeries of others and of God's ordering of the world. There is an undeniable desire to shake off any constraints or any boundaries even God-given ones that exist for our safety and for our eternity. The second way that mockery shows up is it, it hits closer to home. Because this mockery is the words and attitudes that come out of our mouths or sometimes out of our keyboards. Naturally, we find ourselves responding to things we see and hear all the time. But many times our reactions or responses are negative. We might hear a speech or a soundbite or read a headline or see a thread in a Facebook post, and our hearts and our minds and our mouths can be off and running in a heartbeat. We will defend our perspective or opinions, but oftentimes at the very same time, we are devaluing, belittling, scoffing other people. 
and not just theoretical people, but actual people, some that we know, some that we don't know, and some that, and many that we will never know. But we mock, we roll our eyes, we let out an expletive, we let out a sanctified, a sanctified or sanitized expletive. We assassinate someone or whole groups of someones in our minds or with our mouths with the kind of hatred that Jesus clearly said in the Beatitudes was no different than murder. We, when we do this, we are being kings and queens in our own self-imagined kingdoms, thinking that we are throwing off the fetters and bonds that bind us to God's heart, all the while feeling eh, pretty good and smug about ourselves, about how smart we are and how we've got it all figured out, and not really caring a bit about the people we love. Let me be clear. I'm using the word we because I am painfully aware of my own guilt in this, to my shame and my needful, often repentance. Lastly, and closest to home, is the mockery and scoffing that can be best described as our own negative self-talk, the defeating ways that we talk to and about ourselves. This is when we make room for the mockery that feeds on brokenness and wounded places within us. Psalm 3 is back in this vein. It's almost as if we're saying to ourselves, there's no salvation for me in God. I'm beyond hope. The doubts grow, the nagging fears come, <laughs> the nagging fears that God is really not there, or that God will drop us and fail us when we need him most, that we will be alone, that we will be abandoned. The poison is mockingly spewed elsewhere in the psalm. Psalm 77, 11 says this, God has forsaken them. Pursue him and seize him. There is none to deliver him. Again, there's the sowing of doubt that God has never had any intention of loving or caring about us. But these are all lies and lies that we get to, have to battle with the truth. Thankfully, those lies aren't true. And we know this because God has said, Many places, and here in Hebrews 13, 5 through 6, I will never leave you or forsake you. And we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Can you hear how the word comes to our rescue? Remember, this is the same word that we are invited to delight in and to meditate on day and night. God is with us. He helps us, and his help is incomparable to the systems of help that man can come up with. Let's look at another example of mockery, of how that mockery can kind of just seep inside of us. In Psalm 41, 8, we read, a deadly thing has been poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Every one of us has had hard things that have happened in our lives. As a therapist, I hear about hard and broken things on a daily basis. That brokenness can start as a cruel word that was said by a peer or a parent. It can be a moment or many moments of physical or sexual violence. It can come in the form of a close friend or a family member betraying your trust. It can come at the loss of a career or the loss of an ability to play your favorite sport. It can be an illness of a beloved family member or a loss that haunts you beyond explanation. Any one of these things can feel like a deadly thing that has been poured out on you. And it feels like we cannot rise up underneath of it at times. 
it will always have us under its thumb. We all know a version of these kinds of thoughts, and they sound a lot like, like this. I'll never recover from this. I'm damaged goods. No one will ever love me. I'm never going to be good enough. I'm ugly. Failure. That's all I'm ever going to be called. Nothing ever works for me. I'm always treated unfairly. Each of these mantras can be a mocking of the truth, the truth of who God has made each of us to be. Healing can come, and the battles are real and long and painful. And God does help us. He declares the truth and the reality of women and men who are called by his name. And this is how we fight back, because we can trust him. God calls us daughters and sons. He promises us a new name. He calls us oaks of righteousness. He reminds us in Psalm 139 that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. He will help us to cry out like the man in Mark 9, 24. I believe, help my unbelief. And what a beautiful thing it is to cry out to the living God and say, please do for me what I cannot do for myself. I want you to recall the scripture at the beginning of this church service today in Psalm 54.4. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. In the Gospel of John, when the disciples are utterly confused about how to be on the path that Jesus was talking about as he neared his crucifixion, Jesus reminded them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, in John 14, 6. If we are going to stay on the Godward path, it is Jesus who will be our path. He knows us on that path and points us back to the path to the truth of his word. He will not mock us or cast us away, and nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So these God placements of mockery in the Psalms strive to mirror in mere reality in this sinful and broken world. They're there on purpose. God knows that we would struggle. These jarring voiced examples of the mockery and the scoffing are there because he wants us to recognize and reject them. These mocking voices are warnings and opportunities to do the opposite. As Christians, we don't want to traffic in the wickedness, the sinning, the scoffing of Psalm chapter 1, so now let's consider how it is that we respond to the mockery of the world from out of our own mouth and inside our hearts and minds. Three of these ways, I think there's three ways we can respond better, respond more Christ-like through the use of empathy, prayer, and gratitude. So let's take a moment to consider each of these. Empathy is the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. And Isaiah, in, in Isaiah 53, he instructs us on how Jesus is going to be our ultimate example of this whole life kind of empathy. This is what Isaiah 53 says. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He chose to empathize with our sinfulness, even though he was sinless. And we share in his sufferings as we are made more and more into his likeness. Truly, all mockery and scoffing ultimately ends up being aimed at Christ, aimed at the heart of our beloved. 
And we reject mockery primarily because we don't want to level that sinful attitude at him. And even if we think we're aiming it at a more justifiable target, we still end up, it's he still carries it. And yes, we are all going to struggle with this. And it, it, but isn't this just a beautiful gift of empathy? Without Jesus Christ, we would be mocking, sinning, scoffing, without a care to the damage we do to others or to our own souls. And even once our lives have been saved by Jesus Christ, our hearts will still be inclined to wander. Robert Robinson's hymn, Come Thou Fount from every blessing, of Every Blessing, in the mid-18th century, gets this so right. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. We all cry out together with this hymn writer, help, keep us on your path. We share that feeling with so many other people. And that shared struggle is an opportunity to renounce mockery as we recognize our struggle in others, lost or saved, on the path of perishing or the path of righteousness. Our God-enabled choice to reject the pathway of mockery and scoffing and sin is empowered by our worship of Jesus. He died and was raised to life to free me, to free all of us from the tyranny of sin that we can now choose to reject. We know that it is our shared experience in the body of Christ, and we get the joyous task of cheering each other on in that process and sharing that joy with others. Secondly, prayer. At all times, we possess an amazing opportunity to pray for people who are being mocked and attacked by the enemy of our souls. We can feel overwhelmed and paralyzed, not even knowing where to start in prayer. God promises us help. In Romans 8, 26 and 27, it says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches our hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for, us, for the saints according to the will of God. Humbly letting God help us to pray is a wonderful antidote to the pride of mockery. There are innumerable things and people to pray for. And starting to pray will help get the momentum to keep on praying for wider and wider and wider circles of people in need. Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. I want you to take a moment and imagine with me, what is it like to be an 81-year-old woman with COVID-19 in a hospital bed, dying alone without family at her side? How do the shadows of dread creep into the heart of a 30-year-old man with HIV AIDS who has a low CD4 count as he, and it just as the fear creeps in as he sits alone in his apartment. What does a young doctor think when she pulls into the hospital parking lot, worried that she's about to expose herself, her toddlers, and her husband to all that she's exposed to that day? 
How vulnerable is the heart of a couple in their 50s who have had to shutter their non-essential business and watch all the security they had built up over decades of sacrifice just slip through their fingers? Let God bring to mind the names of friends, neighbors, strangers. Commit to pray for them and start today. We have an opportunity in active prayer and actions to push back against the mocking and scoffing voices of the enemy of our souls who wants people to abandon hope and to believe that God has forgotten them and he doesn't care. We know better. Listen to this in Romans 15, 4 through 7. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in, accord, in accordance with Christ Jesus, that you together with one voice glorify God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Prayer is the queen of hospitality. Your hearts are never so welcoming and loving towards others as when you sincerely pray for them. And lastly, I want to commend gratitude to you. Listen to this from Philippians 4, 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Just like in Psalm 1, verse 3, being a tree firmly planted looks and sounds a lot like these verses in Philippians. A content, flourishing, living thing is excelling at exactly what it's designed to do. We excel at our made in the image of Godness when we live and look like this. When we traffic in the gratitude that spills out of glorifying God. And how does this book of Psalms end? The last chapters rise to a rejoicing crescendo, culminating in Psalm 150. Here's just the first two verses. Praise the Lord. Praise God at his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Let the deep wells of gratitude to God spill out to others. To postal workers, grocery store clerks, teachers, medical staff, volunteers, people at the food pantry. The list can be endless. Don't come up with a theoretical list. Come up with a real list. Write five names down this today, this week. Fill out five cards. Make that writing a time of prayer. Send them, bless them, give them with the comfort that we as the children of God have been comforted with in Christ. It is impossible to sincerely bless and thank someone and mock them at the same time. Let gratitude towards God transform and shield you on the path of righteousness. And if you don't know this Jesus that we've been talking about, if you're sitting there at home and you know that you're on the outside looking in, wondering what can, Je can Jesus even love me? The answer is yes. I want, you to contact, I want you to contact someone today, someone who know you, you know loves Jesus, and ask them this simple question. Tell me more about this Jesus you seem to love so much.
Brothers and sisters, I want our hearts to be guarded from mockery. I want us to walk on the path of righteousness, and I want us to glorify God with how we live. Let me pray for us as we close. Almighty God of heaven and earth, you have made all that we see and all that we cannot see. God, you, uh, want, you have created a path for us to walk on because you love us and you, you want us to delight in you and to delight in your word. And so, Father God, I just pray that you would help us, help us in the places of doubt, help us in the places of fear, help us in the places that we're convicted of this morning. Help us not to forget that conviction, but to lay it at your feet and ask for help, knowing that you are our helper in times of need and in times of blessing, in times of confusion. You love to help us. And Father God, I just commit each person who is hearing this to you. God, I just pray that we would walk with you today and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.